This is an ABC podcast. It was a huge shock, of course. At first it was quite a novelty and I was quite amused by it because I was trying to find something different about myself, as you do at that age, and to set yourself aside from everybody else. And I thought, wow, I'm a test tube baby, this is awesome. But soon after that, the reality started to sink in and I started to realise that, you know, I had this whole other family out there who I didn't know and where were they and what, what do they look like and what do they do and all of that. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. Welcome to Days Like These. One Sunday when Narelle Grek was 15, sitting around the family dining table after lunch, her parents revealed to her that she had been conceived using donor sperm. After the initial shock wears off, Narelle realises she has to find this man. It's a search that would take her across the world, deep into the layers of state bureaucracy, and would eventually rewrite the law. For everyone. In the very beginning of her search, all Narelle has to go on is a donor code. The man that she's biologically connected to, in the records, he's known only as T5. While she's still a teenager, Narelle asks her mum to get in touch with Professor Gab Kovacs, the doctor who'd assisted with her conception. He was a titan in this corner of the medical world and had access to the records that could contain more information about T5. So they write to him. And he responds a few weeks later with some bad news. In the first decade or so of sperm donations in Australia, donors and families, they were both given a guarantee of anonymity. And that had applied to T5. He agreed to remain anonymous and my parents signed a contract to agree that he would never be identified. I think just because there was such little thought at the time about what the child or the the person who would grow up to be an adult may want to know... And that's how it was back then. Most donors or all donors were anonymous. The logic was that anonymity would protect donors who were more likely to participate, and it protected parents who were told to go home and pretend as best they could that the procedure had never happened. The assumption was that nobody involved would ever need or want to have contact with each other ever again. That law had changed in 1988, but it only applied to people born after that date. It was six years too late for Narelle, who was born in 1982. And so the professor's hands are tied. Because Narelle falls on the wrong side of this dividing line, she has almost no rights to know much about her biological father at all. The professor has access to T5's record, but he can't give it to her. It's the law. And between the lines of that correspondence, something is made very clear. If Narelle is going to find T5, she's going to have to do it the hard way. But the professor does agree to do a couple of very important things. He opens the phone book, finds three people with the same first and last name as T5, and he writes them each a letter, testing the waters. And while he waits to hear back, he gives Narelle a few morsels of information about T5. He had brown hair, brown eyes, was a student and married at the time, and his blood type was O positive, and he was... Five foot seven and weighed ten stone three pounds. Describing, you know, basically every second person in the street, I guess. It's not much, but it's all she's got. So Narelle scribbles the details onto a piece of notepaper and slips it into her wallet for safekeeping. Within a few months, the professor responds. 
He's received no replies. There's nothing more he can do. Narelle picks up the search in earnest a few years later, once she's finished high school and now an adult herself. The new millennium begins, and with it the internet opens up new ways to connect, try to track people down. Narelle creates a Yahoo group, hoping to link donors with the people searching for them. She starts to attend conferences, meets other donor-conceived people for the first time, and she begins to speak out, talking to the media. She protests on the steps of Parliament House, demanding that laws apply equally to all donor-conceived people. Narelle argues, I have a right to know about my genetic heritage, that it's a human right to know where you come from. But she also has so many questions about the little things too. What are T5's interests, his job? What's he done with his life? What's his favourite food? Now an adult, she approaches Professor Kovacs for a second time. So when I was 18, I made an appointment to see Professor Kovacs. I wanted to know whether there'd be any more information he could tell me. And he said, unfortunately, if I were to tell you your donor's name, I'd go to jail. He tells her that he'd taken her request for information about her donor to the hospital ethics board and then rejected it. It's during this time that she realises she's grieving in a way that can't be easily acknowledged or understood. Because there's no recognised relationship between her and T5, there can be no loss. But Narelle does feel a loss. And even mourning it is not really possible, while she still holds out hope that one day she'll be able to meet him. Searching for T5 is exhausting work. Unpredictable too. But Narelle is tenacious. Her methods are creative... She starts a blog called T5's Daughter, documenting her search. There's a post about trying to share her journey with her parents, how she's not even sure they really understand why she's going to such extraordinary lengths to find T5. And even as she writes about her isolation and her pain, she's funny and she's determined. An early poem about trying to map her biological connections ends, What a mess, what a tree. It all adds up and equals me. One post is titled, Apparently He Thinks About Me Too. And in it, Narelle writes about how she'd heard at a conference that donors do wonder about their possible offspring. I wonder if T5 thinks about me. If he wants to know me or is scared of me. This dread-headed little hippie. Is she what he expected one of his daughters to be? Am I a disgrace to him or do I make him proud? Can he see himself in me? Can he see me at all? At one point, Narelle prints a stack of flyers. Across the top is the question, are you my half-brother or sister? She's at uni now, studying social work. And there's a student video of her, backpack slung over her shoulder, water bottle in the side pocket, as she walks around uni pinning up flyers on communal notice boards, squeezing her story into the gaps between ads for rental furniture and a winter ball. And sometimes, of course, she loses faith. It's a lost cause we're trying to find T5 um, because he's probably old and, and has a life of his own and can't be bothered following up on stuff like this or, I don't know, maybe he's just scared. Every scrap of information is hard won. One minute, access to his identity seems just around the corner and then the next, she wonders if he's even still in Melbourne, in the country, if he's even still alive. Sitting on the tram one day, Narelle gets a call from a government records office. 
They've found T5's file in their archive, but Narelle still isn't allowed to access it. And it's in that moment that the person on the phone lets slip a small but a very significant piece of information. T5 has a distinctly Maltese surname. Narelle bursts into tears. For years, she'd imagined T5 to be English or Scottish. Narelle had been raised in a Maltese Australian family. Both of her parents had their roots there. And she's grateful for the information, but she's also indignant. It was her information to have had access to in the first place. Narelle would later travel to Malta. She'd do interviews, appear in newspaper articles, asking if anyone knows anyone who might look a bit like her. She thought, maybe it'll be this photo, this snippet of footage, that someone would see. They might be related to T5. Who knows, they might be T5. And then, more than a dozen years into her search, the importance of time takes on another dimension. Narelle is diagnosed with bowel cancer. It's advanced, the doctors tell her. She's 28 years old. All the doctors asked almost instantly, is there a history of bowel cancer in your family? There are tests, if it's in the family, that young people can have from about 15. So had I known that there was a potential risk of bowel cancer, I could have caught this One more time, Narelle returns to Professor Kovacs. She tells him that this could be her last chance. Could he make an exception, release T5's records? And he gives her more bad news. Prince Henry's hospital has now been closed and demolished. The records have been moved to another site and he no longer has access. So he couldn't share them with her, even if he wanted to. Public pressure on the issue is building, though. And finally the Victorian Law Reform Committee and the State Parliament run an inquiry. At the outset, it's clear that they are not at all keen on overturning the anonymity laws that affect Narelle. Still, she's hopeful. We haven't had a voice really before this time and it's really nice that we're being listened to. I hope that I am around long enough to potentially meet my biological father and some of my paternal family. Narelle gets to speak in front of the Law Reform Committee. She tells them her search has now stretched to almost 15 years. She says the secrecy around her conception makes her feel like a second-class citizen, that learning the truth will allow her to finally move forward with her life, that she knows she needs to focus on her treatment now, but her search for T5 still consumes her. There are tears from the assembled politicians... The chair of the inquiry would later say that Narelle's testimony had decided his position. The abstracts that had swirled around this debate for so long had become focused. Narelle had made it real for him. And the tide of opinion among lawmakers begins to turn. The problem is that it can still take years to turn any recommendations into law. And for Narelle, with her health worsening, it wasn't happening quick enough. Here she is speaking with reporter Sarah Dingle at the time. I, I just think it's, I think it's absolutely appalling that they can't get their act together and, and make a decision on the recommendations that have been really well canvassed. And on Monday, I was you know, given really unfortunate news that the tumours are growing, so I don't have all the time in the world right now. And, um, and I just really want to know my 
genetic background. So it's been a 15-year process and journey and battle and, you know, I don't know if I can wait another year or two. Word of Narelle's declining health reached the chair of the committee. He realises that the law may not change in time to help her. And so one afternoon, he walks down the hall from his office at Parliament House, requests an audience with then-Premier Ted Bailiou and asks him to intervene. It was a matter of conscience, and only the Premier could authorise such a request. And right away, he does give his consent. Archives are contacted, records searched, and the next day, they find him. T5. A letter is sent, stressing the need for an urgent reply. His name is Ray Tonner. Initially, I thought it had to do with, at the same time, my son was uh, applying for his passport because he was going overseas. So I thought that had something to do with them wanting information or confirmation about his... And then I read it again, and then that's when the penny dropped. I thought, I realised, hello, one of my donor children is making contact. So, yeah. All this history comes back on me, and then, you know, wow, amazing. Like the record said, Ray is about five foot seven brown eyes. And when he speaks, his face tells you at least as much as his words do. All these years, Ray had been living about 100 k's up the Western Highway with his partner, Susie, and a son, Zach, who's only a few years younger than Narell. Their home isn't more than an hour and a half drive from where she'd grown up. And all that time, he'd had no idea. No letters from professors, not a single phone call, no inkling at all that Narell had existed. It had been almost 35 years since Ray had donated as a student. He'd seen a flyer on a message board near the student cafeteria at college. And the concept had appealed to him. To help advance science, maybe help a couple in need, and to make a little extra money. So over a period of a few months, he started going in. Once, sometimes twice a week. The nurses had made it sound like the donations would be used for research. And, you know, maybe they'd make their way to the IVF program. Every now and then, once in a blue moon, I, I might think about it. Well, I wonder, I wonder if, if there are any kids out there. But then it was a hypothetical. I mean, it was no use me trying to work out are there children out there or not. And because I'd already signed that it's a legal document, the thought of ever contact them never entered my mind. But now they were contacting him. And so he calls the number on the letter and he says, of course, I'm happy to be in touch. Here are my details. It all moves very quickly after that. There's some email contact between Narelle and Ray, and within a few days, they agree to speak on the phone. And it was just a, a joy to talk to her. She was intelligent, found out that she was creative and she loved to sing, and she was vivacious. The whole time I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm speaking to someone who I can't really call her my daughter per se, but she's like a surrogate daughter. She's like the daughter I should have had but kind of didn't but did A week or so later, Narelle drives up to visit Ray at home. When I saw her coming out of the car, in my heart, like, there was this switch, the parental love switch, bang, it came on straight away. I just felt this overwhelming sense of protective, total love for it, you know, just parental love, the purest form of love you can have. I, I really just thought, yes, daughter... It was almost as if I'd gone back in time and I was holding her in my arms and yet here she was standing in front of me, 
fully formed and yet I still I had that same feeling of love to her as if I would, I'd just held her for the first time. Ray and his wife Susie make tea and share some family albums with her. A little while later, Ray's son Zach arrives. When Zach uh, came in, he looked at her and he goes, Hello, big sister. Straight away, and straight away, the two of them had this rapport as if oh, they'd been living forever, you know, as a brother and sister. They were so relaxed in each other's company, it was beautiful. I mean, and I thought, you know, hello, this is exactly the sort of daughter I'd, I'd want to have. Anybody would be proud to have a daughter like this, obviously. So, and, and I'm sitting there looking at the both of them, so proud and so happy. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was a, a sublimely on a beautiful experience on so many levels. Narelle and Ray are in near constant contact after that first meeting. There are emails, calls, photos sent back and forth. And at the time, too, I wasn't aware of her um, medical condition either. Um, you know, she, she didn't tell me that until a few days later. And I realised, you know, that time was short. Within a few weeks, Narelle's health worsens and she goes back into hospital. So Ray, he starts getting the train to see her every other day. And on one of these visits, the two of them decide to escape the hospital for a few hours and go to lunch at a cafe nearby. She put her arm in, in my arm like this and I said to her, you know what, Ray, I feel like the proudest man in the world right now. I'm walking up Gretton Street with my daughter. She just had such a beautiful look on her face at the time. And, yeah, it was a good afternoon. I mean, every moment I spent with her was beautiful. It was just a magic moment. But there were so few of them. And then on March 26th, me and Susie were walking our dog at the time, just not far from here. And my phone buzzed. I picked it up and it was her sister telling me that Rel had passed away. So from February 11th to March 26th, I barely had, you know, less than six weeks that I knew her. That was it. I cried, I cried, I cried. I just, I raged. I was so sad and angry at the same time. It was that, just that, why? Why did this have to happen to such a beautiful person? It just... It just knocked me for six. I was an emotional wreck for weeks, months afterwards. Almost three years pass. And then, in 2016 the Victorian government announces world-leading legislation. All historical donor anonymity is overturned and the right to access information about donors is applied retroactively. So now, people born before 1988, people who'd been in the same position as Norell, they're given the same rights as other donor-conceived people. This is the thing that Norell had fought most of her life to change. And it had finally happened... Today, any donor-conceived person in Victoria can learn the identity of their donor without their donor's consent. That's their legal right. 
many have hailed this as the most progressive law of its kind anywhere in the world, centering the needs and rights of donor-conceived people. It is known as Norell's Law. Protections are in place for all parties who don't want to be contacted because the system operates as a kind of two-way street. Donors can also access more information about their offspring, though they do need that person's permission to get it. Records that had been scattered in hospitals and clinics were centralised through one agency called VARTA. Ray had been in contact with them since he'd met Narelle, and one day he's told that Narelle was not the only person who'd been conceived from his donor sperm. I found out there actually could be more like about 10 or 11, maybe more, who knows? As soon as I heard that, it was like, oh, my God, there's more of you. And it was, and it was kind of an, like an oh-my-God feeling, but also it was a good feeling too. I thought, oh, I've got more children than I can contact. And I accepted that, and I thought, well, fair enough. It had been five years since Narelle had entered Ray's life. And now the law that she had helped to change was giving him the ability to seek out some of the other 10 or 11 donor offspring that he was connected to. And that meant that now Ray was in the same position that Narelle had been. He was now the person carrying a heavy truth, bearing a difficult message. He was the one on a search to find people that he felt connected to, but who he'd never met. There are strict processes about how this works, but if Ray wants to try to connect with these 10 or 11 other donor offspring, Vata will try to find them. By this stage, he'd been cleared of any definitive genetic predisposition to bowel cancer, but he still felt motivated to continue. I, I felt obligated to let them know that this was a condition that Rel had without, you know, sort of unduly upsetting him. But also, once I met Rel, suddenly my curiosity was out there. I was, I was like Rel, I wanted to know how these children turned out. I guess I'm wondering what thought process you went through and really kind of like what your reasons are for wanting to reach out. The interests of my, my son, my, you know, donor-conceived offspring is paramount. They are what it's all about. It's not about me. It's about them. It's about me trying to do what I believe is best for their interests and to try and do whatever positive things I can for them. And so Ray proceeds. The organisation will connect him with each new person one at a time and he has no complaints about the process. They were so helpful, so empathic, so just professional and they're the ones that did the detective work that found a lot of the, uh, well, about three, three, no, four, <laughs> I can't break, four um, uh, donor-conceived children that they've actually found for me. Ray has had contact with four of these donor offspring so far, but it's complicated. Most people, like maybe up to 90% of people who are donor-conceived from that period, they still don't know this about themselves. Their parents never told them. So when the organisation makes contact on a donor's behalf, it's often the first time that a person learns they're donor-conceived. And that's been the case for all four of the offspring that Ray has made contact with so far. None of the others, as far as I'm aware, were made aware of me until Vata actually contacted them. So most of them will be, you know, in their 30s or later before they actually find out. I, I, I guess um, one of the complications is that 
in even giving some of these people a choice about how much information that they want to share, you need to reveal the truth to them that they may not know. It's better for people to know the facts, to know their true history than to not. These donor-conceived children have a right, as every human being has, to know what your biological history is. One or two of them would, you know, a bit annoyed with their parents for, you know, having kept that sort of secret from for so long, but they reconciled with them eventually. And there was one decided not to tell it was their dad and she didn't want to cause him any more angst. So she's just not telling him that I exist. And, and yeah, and she thought that's for the best. So I'm not going to tell her how to, whether she should pass that information to her, her dad or not. Were any of them angry with you? No, no, on the contrary, no. Hey, why should they be? <laughs> I, I was doing what I, what I, not only thought at the time, what I know was a good deed. Uh, yeah, I, n- n- none of them were angry at me. Ray has gone on this journey four times now. Each time, the process is similar, but naturally, the responses can be completely different. The first of the four donor-conceived people he met in person... Uh, we had a, a meeting at Varta... Had a lovely chat. Contact with the second happened a few months later, this time over the phone. And we've exchanged a few emails, but she's running her own business. She's very busy. Ray had his third meeting in a pub. Um, And then there was a mail, and then actually I met him and his family, and that was good. The fourth person was another Um, meeting at a distance. We haven't met, and the phone calls petered out, and I haven't talked to her for about six months or more. Do they want different things from you? Um... Well, to be perfectly honest, I, I don't really know what they want. But overall, once their curiosity has been satisfied, they're not that worried about carrying on the relationships. Because like I said, there's been no contact for months and months and months with the, the, the last one I contacted. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to get used to the idea that, you know, they might not want to carry on this relationship. Fair enough. Had you wanted a relationship, do you think? Well, initially there was some times where I could imagine having this great big family party where all the donor-conceived children have a great big picnic all together and everybody's meeting each other and discovering that they've got, you know, half-brothers and sisters and having this, like, this extended family experience. And I thought that would be beautiful. It hasn't eventuated, you know. So there's the imagined experience and there's the reality. And this is the reality right now. So where are you now? Well, I'm kind of at this point in my life where I'm thinking, should I contact Vada and just say, look, let's just have a bit of a break from this for a while. I mean, do they want to carry on communicating with me or or don't they? And how much should I reach out to them? I mean, I don't want to be too uh, demanding. But at the same time, I I would like some clarity. I would like to know, you know, where do we stand here? And yet I'm afraid by asserting myself too much, I might start to feel from their point of view that I'm demanding something that they don't want to give or whatever. So I have no regrets about initiating this process, but if this is what the outcome's going to be, you know, uh, this frustration, this not knowing, this kind of being in this sort of limbo state. It's not good for you. 
there was only one rel and the way she felt about finding me and the way others would feel is obviously different. I've got to accept that, you know, and it was such a joyous thing to find her and then to have it taken away from us like that. I will never forget her, obviously. Sometimes I dream about her, you know, sort of flying through the universe as this amazing spirit being that's just infinitely beautiful, infinitely happy, singing and jamming along with Jimi Hendrix and with, with her favourite blues singers and just being happy. One great, long, infinitely beautiful party. She'd love that. Before I go to leave, Ray pulls out a box of articles and mementos from this time in his life. In the box is a printout of an email that Norell had written to a friend the day after she'd first met Ray. Well, yesterday I mustered the energy to visit Ray with my best friend, Danielle. It was one of the most life-changing and pivotal days of my life, and I will never forget it. He is simply one of the most beautiful, in-touch, caring, funny, and interesting men I've ever met in my life. And I can say without one doubt that I love him so much already. We have a lot in common and he is so proud of me. He hugged me at every opportunity and kept expressing how beautiful I am, how wonderful this all is, and how he was in awe of the whole situation. He is a really beautiful man. I feel so lucky. I couldn't have asked for a better father. Raymond's daughter, Rel. None of the four donor-conceived people that Ray has had contact with responded to requests for an interview. Since 2017, Barta has reached out to 54 people on behalf of their donors. 47 of those 54 people didn't previously know they were donor-conceived. When this happens, extensive support is available to all involved. Laws in this area are different in every Australian state and territory, but many continue to call for the Victorian system to be rolled out nationally. As the popularity of at-home DNA testing kits in recent years has meant that many people have discovered by accident that their donor conceived. Without access to information and adequate supports, they're often left with no option other than to become DNA detectives in the search to find their donor. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. We'd love it if you'd follow us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating and a review. It helps new people find the show. Also, if there's a story we just have to hear, please email us or you can send us a voice memo. Get in touch at dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud and our season three reporting team includes Sam Wicks, Belinda Lopez, 
Anthony Scully, Melanie Tate, James Viver, John Chia, Meg Bolton, Taylor Gray, and Alicia Sometimes. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick, and our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design and engineering on this episode by John Jacobs, and the supervising producer was Sophie Townsend. Thanks, Sophie. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain, and our theme song in all its glory is Yena by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time. Hi, it's Elizabeth here. I'd love you to search for days like these in your favourite podcast app and hit follow. You don't want to miss something awesome like the next episode that we have coming your way. It's a journey that starts in the home of competitive crab tying in a remote Queensland bay. The, the big crabs here, they're all around the two kilo mark, so you have to be quick in grabbing these crabs and putting them under your feet to tie. And I just go over the nippers. Their nippers are, uh, are displayed up. They're always at a defence uh, That's their defence mechanism, so they're always up trying to get you. That's Jason. He's from the idyllic little town of Stanage Bay. And next time on Days Like These, a story about leaving the place you love with adventure on your mind and not quite realising what you've risked until it's too late. Well, I'd like to think I was born a pirate and... A series of events led me to be one. And while you wait for the next episode of Days Like These to drop, why not try another great ABC podcast? Like this one. Conversations. As a journalist in China, were you under surveillance by the state? Spend an hour in the life of someone else. We always worked on the assumption that the ABC Bureau office would be bugged. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. So I didn't want to leave at all. I felt safe. And then at midnight, knock on the door, seven state security police. Hear the latest conversations on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.